If you could turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. As we are closing out our series in Corinth. And we've almost been in Corinthians uh, a little over, I believe, a year and a half, maybe even longer than that, amen? So we've been able to journey with the Apostle Paul as he's been uh, writing this letter and been able to learn a lot. So today we're going to close out this series. I'm, I'm excited to close this chapter and to begin the, our next chapter, our next series, which will be starting in two weeks. We'll be talking about what every Christian uh, or what most Christians hope no one will ask them, Amen. So we'll be talking about tough questions, tough things that Christians often hope that no one will ask. We'll be starting that series by answering the question, if someone was to ask you, isn't the church, is the church sexually repressive? Amen? Isn't the church sexually repressive? We'll be looking at what the Bible says about sexuality and how in the midst of a world that's confused about sexuality, we as Christians can respond and point them to the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. Amen? Super excited about that. I pray that you're excited about that. During this series, I'm I'm hoping that you will invite someone who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus to come. Um, This will be a great time for you to invite them to come and learn more about the Christian faith. Amen? 1 Corinthians 16, what you hold in your hands is the very word of God. Uh, We want to read it with confidence, knowing that it was given uh, by God to man under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We're going to read the entire chapter. It's been a long week. It has been a long week for Forest Baptist Church. We had VBS this week. We got it in five days. Amen. We've had uh, multiple things going on. We had uh, precious uh, funerals and, and deaths that went on. So I'm not going to be able to dig as much into the text, into 24 verses today as we would like. But we're just going to do a sweeping overview in order to close this chapter out. Amen? Starting at verse 1. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos... I strongly, strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus, where the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. 
be subject to each of these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and the coming of Achaeus, because they have made up for your absence. For they refresh my spirits as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla together the church in their house. Send you a heart and greetings in the Lord. And all the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. So Paul is closing this letter out, and I believe um, he's closing this letter out, and in the salutation, is giving us a vision of what this church should be, what effective ministry looks like. Every year in the U.S., churches close across this country. Thousands and thousands of them close. And this is both sometimes good news and sometimes bad. Bad in the sense that sometimes when a church is closed, they were a genuine church. And for whatever reason, they were in a hard area, a hard place to do ministry. And they couldn't keep up with that ministry. So maybe they, they closed or they merged with another church. But then there's some churches that close that we should be happy that they closed because they were not representing uh, the kingdom of God. They were not representing what the Bible says the church is. Perhaps they uh, went into error. They began to believe false doctrine or what have you, what have you. Well, the Apostle Paul wants churches to be started and he wants churches to be effective. He wants churches to have ministries that matter and ministries that make a difference. And the truth of the matter is, all of us in here, if we're a part of Forest Baptist Church, we want to be a part of an effective church. No one wants to be a part of a church that is declining, that is dying, that is irrelevant, that does not passionately serve Jesus. We all want to be a part of something that is successful, that is moving, that is reaching a mission. And the church's mission is very clear. Jesus gave us that great commission, that great mission, a clear vision of what we are to do as his people in Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 19, as well as Acts chapter 1. And throughout the New Testament epistles, we can learn what effective ministry and an effective church looks like. Jesus told us that an effective church is one who is concerned about the loss one who is going into a dying world and preaching about a living Savior, one who is baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching everyone to obey all that he has commanded. And we want to be that church. We want to be a church that's making a difference in Newburgh, in Petersburg, in Louisville, and throughout the world. But there's, a, there's ingredients to an effective church. There's some things that each church that is struggling needs to do to move from struggling to effective. And we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We see that Paul is showing that the effective church is a church filled with members who recognize that we are part of a mission bigger and more glorious than ourselves. We are a part of a mission bigger 
and more glorious than ourselves. And as the Apostle Paul is closing his letter to the struggling church, there's three things that we can glean from this uh, last chapter if we're going to be an effective and missional church, if we're going to be a church that is effective. There's three things we're going to look at real quick. The first is that mission requires currency. It requires cash. All right? As Paul is closing his letter out and his, his final sayings, he points to the fact that the mission that we've been called to, if we're going to be effective, it requires money. You know, I think Paul was a Baptist preacher. He preached a great sermon in 1 Corinthians, and he closed out by raising an offering. Amen? <laughs> Look at what he says. Now, concerning the collection of the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come and when I arrive. I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So uh, an effective church is one who understands that mission uh, requires currency, requires cash, requires money. And when we say an effective church, of course, we're not talking about a building. We're talking about the people of God. We are the church. We are those who have been called out, the ecclesia of God. And we each want to take responsibility in the area of financial stewardship, understanding that a church and, and its mission will be accomplished by the work of the Holy Spirit through his people and their resources and how they use their resources. The church at Jerusalem was struggling with financial poverty. So Paul tells them, he says, listen, I need you all to uh, take a collection because the Jerusalem church is struggling. Now we want to remember that there was a time, according to Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 46, where the Jerusalem church was flourishing financially. We read that people were giving uh, all that they could to help one another. There was almost a sort of communal living. There was no one among them who was in need. But things have changed. Just a few decades later, we see that this church is in dire need. They are struggling financially. And Paul wants to give this church at Corinth a bigger picture. He says, let's look outside of Corinth. Let's look outside of Achaia. Let's look outside of Greece. And let's travel hundreds of miles down the road, and let's know that there is a church that is struggling, and we need to help. And what's fascinating about this is this. Most of the people in Corinth was Gentiles. Most of the people in Jerusalem was Jews. Paul says we're part of a bigger family. We're a, a part of a family that is not divided by ethnicity. That's not even divided by location. We're part of a family that is growing and that is now global. And we as believers, we take concern about everyone who is in our family, no matter if they're Jew, Greek, or Gentile. We seek to help. Listen. These churches had nothing ethically or culturally in common. 
with the Jewish Christians in Israel, but Paul shows them a larger vision of love and care that, str- that stretches across ethnic and economic bounds. And, and he seeks to send funds, even across a sea, in order for these people to know that they are loved and that they are part of a kingdom. And that's our call as Christians. Our call is to live with sensitivity, knowing that everything that we have belongs to God, that God has set us apart. He saved us from hell. He separated us from the world. He gave life to us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins so that we could live our lives now for his kingdom, a kingdom that is concerned with reaching people who are lost. And that takes stewardship on our time. So Paul helps us to know what stewardship looks like. He helps us to to see that this mission requires currency and that it requires us to be good stewards. He says a few things that can help us. Number one, he says, put some money aside each week. Put some money aside. Store up money each week. And that's a good practice for us, for those who get paid weekly, to take some money out and to store it up so that when we come together collectively, we can, we can take an offer. And he then it says, as he may prosper. Okay? Good stewardship, New Testament stewardship, is according to the way that a person prospers. And we've talked about this before, that nowhere in the New Testament, only Jesus speaks is the word tithing used. Okay? To give 10%. Here we don't teach that as a law, we teach it as a principle. If you don't know where to start with giving, seeing that it was a principle that dominated Judaism and, and the Jews, we encourage people to give 10%, to start there, if you're able to. But you may not be able to. And some may not be poor. And Paul is saying each person may give as they are able. For a poor person, that may not be 10% for the season. For a rich person, that may be more than 10%. It seems if there is a stewardship that is required on discerning, that, is requi- that requires discerning, that requires a heart that is willing to give for a mission. That's what Paul does here. He lays that out. He says, as each may prosper, as, as you prosper, as you grow, your money should graduate and grow, and your giving should graduate. Your personal finance and your personal financial discipline is a big deal to the kingdom of God. And we want to know here at Forest Baptist Church that our monies, um, that when we tithe and when we give as a church, that our our monies go uh, to missions. It, It often, it goes to places that maybe we personally can't be. And missions in this city that we believe and that we back up to. 10% of every offering is set aside and is put in a mission fund. And that mission fund is specifically designated to help other people. Um, we want to use that. Those missions are often used to help Christians and people within the body of Christ. We have a, a committee that uh, meets and that talks to people who are struggling financially and who uh, may have a hard time paying that LG&E bill or um, came upon hard times. And that's what the body of Christ does. We, we share our financial resources in order to help each other and in order to grow Christ's kingdom. Amen. There once was a pastor named uh, Philip Brooks. He pastored the uh, Holy Trinity Church in uh, Baltimore. He was really known in Boston, excuse me, he was really known in the 19th century for being a a mission-minded church. One day, some member, I guess, uh, was 
curious and simply asked him this question. He said, if our church was destroyed by fire, what would you do? He replied, he said, I would stand in the midst of the smoldering ruins and take up an offering for missions. And what was his point? His point is the mission of the church doesn't change. We're called to go out into the world and to reach people. And that takes currency. That takes cash. Look at your Bibles. Paul continues in verse number five. He says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. So he says, I want to raise some money for Jerusalem. But no, I'm going to come because I care for you. Um, I started, he started this church maybe five, six years ago. He labored in Corinth. A church was smart, started, it was a smaller church. He's now in Ephesus as he's writing this letter from Ephesus, and he's letting them know, I'm going to come your way, and I'm going to spend some time with you. He says, because I care with you, for you, but I also need you to help me out on my journey. <laughs> he said, I'm going to need some money, amen? Why? Because mission takes what? Mission takes currency. And perhaps one of the best ways we can know if we're mission-minded is by how we steward our money. Or how mission-minded we are is by how we steward our money. Amen. Second, we see that mission requires courage. Not only does it require currency, it requires courage. Look at verse 8. But I will stay in Ephesus into Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. There are many adversaries. Paul was a courageous man. Not only was he, as he describes in Philippians 3, a Jew, uh, a Hebrew amongst Hebrews, uh, an elite Hebrew, one who was uh, trained in Judaism and one who was zealous for the law. But we also see when God called him, when he snatched him uh, from his own personal mission to God's mission, that Paul courageously went forth. He went to the Jews and preached in the synagogues, as well as to the Gentiles. He often put his life on the line for the mission. He cared so much about lost people that he was able to act in the midst of courage. And God has called us church. If we're going to be effective church, not only must we give our cash, our currency to the mission, but we also must... We also must live courageously. There's a part of all of us that wants to sit back and just to, to kind of be safe, to be comfortable, to do what's easiest. And that's, 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 that's a part of all of us. But as Paul told Timothy, he says, God has not given us the spirit of fear, of timidity, but power, love, and self-control. The Lord has given us the Holy Spirit, and as we step out on faith and put ourselves in uncomfortable situations, the Holy Spirit comforts us and gives us courage. Jesus called the Holy Spirit, his, he said, he is your helper. Now, when do we need a helper? Do we need a helper when we're sitting at home on the couch? Sometimes, if the remote is too far away. No. We, we need help, we need comfort when we are in an uncomfortable situation. 
And many of us, we haven't experienced the help of the Holy Spirit and we have not been able to live courageously because we're not willing to step out on faith. And really here in Paul, in 1 Corinthians 16, as Paul is closing out this letter, he's, he's calling Christians to live selflessly. He's calling Christians to, to, to be a part of the ministry. He's calling Christians to sacrificially live by giving currency, but also by living with courage. Look what Paul says here in verse 9. This is, in verse 8, this is an incredible, incredible verse. He says that he wants to, to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why? For a wide door for effective work has opened to him. There's a wide door of ministry that has recently opened to Paul. He says, so I'm going to stay here. That's a discernment. That's a discernment. But look at what he says. And there are many adversaries. See, some of us, we talk about God opening up a door for us, and it's always comfortable. The Lord opened up a door for me. Hallelujah. Got more money, more time, right? More space, more ways to be celebrated. No, but Paul said this effective door, It comes with much adversity. Many times when God calls us to the mission, it's not so that we can be in a situation to cruise. It's often calls for us to be put in situations that are tough. A friend of mine's uh, son uh, has in his his house a a sign that says, uh, we do hard things. Talking about his family, we do hard things. And that should be the Christian's model. Once we have seen what Jesus has done for us, once we have seen the sacrificial love of our Savior, once we realize that grace, although it's free, it wasn't cheap, once we have been captivated by that old rugged cross, we, in looking at the example of Jesus and understanding how we're pardoned because of Jesus, should do hard things. What was the hard thing that Paul did? Acts chapter 9 is kind of lets us behind the scene. This is, this is Paul in Ephesus. And Paul lets us behind the scene. Uh, Luke lets us behind the scene of what was going on in Ephesus. So as Paul is writing the church of Corinth, we get to see what this great door of ministry that opened was for him. Acts chapter 19 verse 8 says, And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannius, thus continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So what was the door that God opened for Paul? Was it a new position? that had more money? Was it a a comfortable living? No. He got excited about the fact that God opened a door for him to preach freely. And he said, for three months, I got to do that in the synagogue. And then after they closed that door and I started facing persecution, I moved on to to a, a hall where people would come to be educated, and I preached. And he says he stayed there for two years. And that took courage. Paul was persecuted in Ephesus. When we continue to read the story of Acts chapter 19, we see that there was turbulence and, 
And verse 21 says, now, after these events, Paul resolved in his spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem. And that's what we read in 1 Corinthians 16 now, saying, after I have been there, I must see Rome. And having sent to Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Aristus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together and the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. That took courage. Paul went into Asia and preached against uh, idolatry and adultery as it was a very sensational sensational, uh, uh, place and a worship, a sexual freedom. Sounds familiar. Paul preached and he preached with courage and he preached with conviction. If we're going to be effective as a church, we have to be a courageous people. And at times it's calling for courageous people. People who are not afraid to speak the truth in love and who believe that the good news of Jesus Christ is worth inconvenience. And if you're here today, I hope this encourages you if you're a non-Christian, that God calls Christians to be courageous. That God loves you so much that he is calling his people to risk their comfort and their lives in order to reach you with a message of love and grace. Martin Luther King says that the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. Paul was put in a challenging and a a controversy situation in, in Acts chapter 19, and rather than run and coward in fear, he pressed on with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what we must do. Another picture of courage here in the text, uh, 1 Corinthians 16, Paul calls men specifically in this passage to be courageous. Verse 13, he says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all you do be done in love. God is looking for courageous men. We talked about this last week, I'm going to say it again, amen. Might say it next week, I'm just joking. He says, be watchful. He's looking for men who are going to be watchful. The church will not thrive without men stepping up and leading. And we put a huge emphasis on that in the church. I praise God for my sisters. Amen. The sisters in many churches and many circles is holding it down. And I bet that was probably the same thing that was going on in Corinth. Paul called them out. He said, act like men. And what does acting like men look like? He says it looks like being watchful. What does it mean to be watchful? It means to stand against sin, to stand against selfishness, to to watch out for idolatry and legalism. He says, stand firm. We know that there was teachers in Corinth who were uh, preaching contrary to the cross and who were denying the core doctrines and values of the Christian faith. He's calling these men to stand strong, to stand firm. G.K. Chesterton said, we ought 
to be a church that doesn't move with the culture, but that moves the culture. And the only way we're going to be a church that uh, moves the culture instead of moving with the culture is if we stand firm and if we act like men. <laughs> I'm going to take a little liberty here and say maybe what Paul meant by acting like men is that rather than gossiping and being sensitive, <laughs> that, that men should be strong, not divisive, and striving towards unity. Uh, we need men to be men. That's all I'm going to say about that. But we need women to be courageous too. We need, we need women especially to, to look to, to, to the scriptures. And we see in the scriptures a woman by the name of Aquila who was a, a key disciple of Paul in Corinth when he planted the church at Corinth. And she's a leader amongst the people. She, we we want to praise women of faith who are courageous and who are mission-minded. And we need them. We need women like Sojourner Truth, whose birth name was uh, Isabella. She changed her name in uh, 1943. In 19, uh, I'm sorry, in uh, 1843. In 1827, uh, slavery uh, in New York, slaves were, were released, and, and she was one of those slaves that were released. And her child was taken away from her um, during slavery. And she went and on mission and worked with abolitionists to try to uh, free other slaves. She went on the East Coast and devoted her life to, to, to trying to free people that were caught up in slavery. And somewhere along the road, she met Jesus. And Jesus became the center of her life. And then she changed from just let's free slaves physically to preaching a complete message of liberation, spiritually and physically. And she went into the court system, and she challenged the court system. She sued her old owner for her child, and she won her child back. And she changed her name from Isabella to Sojourner Truth because she said she is on a pilgrimage of truth and to expose the truth of God. We need people like that in the church. But not maybe on a grand scale. Maybe God hasn't called you to a national ministry. Maybe God hasn't called you to something that's going to get publicity. But we need people, if we're going to have an effective ministry, that is courageous at home. That is courageous by protecting their home from the things of the world. That is courageous to go against the grain of society. We need people that's going to be courageous in the workplace. Not someone who's just going to start trouble, right? But someone who is willing to be a light. And if someone asks you where you stand on an issue, where you're able to be wise as a serpent and gentle as a dove and say, as a born-again Christian, this is where I stand. The church is a church, is a people who should be made up of courage. Joshua 1.9, God tells Joshua as he's taken over from Moses, a message that I believe he tells every born-again believer. Every born-again believer. As we start our journey in the Christian life and continue it on, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened 
and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. There's someone here today who is stifled in their walk with Jesus, who is stifled as a believer because you are walking and living in fear. What could you do for God if you didn't have fear? Who could you deliver? What cousin could you free from bondage if you didn't have fear? Jesus told us in Matthew 28, 18 and 19, he says, Go ye therefore, teaching all nations. Nations had different beliefs. It wasn't Christian beliefs. Baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then he goes on to say, And lo, I will be with you even until the end of the world. It takes courage to go. And as Christians, a lot of times we hear the low but we ignore the go. We hear God will be with me. He said he'll never leave nor forsake me. But we don't hear the go. (laughs) He said, I won't leave or forsake you when you're on mission. Not when you're on the comfort of your couch. Be courageous. Stand up for the Lord. Stand up for the Lord. Going back to Sojourner Truth, one day, on one occasion, she was a, uh, accompanied by a man, as she was speaking, who uh, said these words, Oh, woman, do you think your talk about slavery does any good? Do you suppose people care what you say? She responded, Why? I don't care any more. I'm sorry, he said, Why? I don't care for any more of your talk than I do for the bite of a flea. She responded, Perhaps not, but I'm going to keep biting, (laughs) and you'll have to keep scratching. (laughs) I pray that we'll be those type of people when people tell us, I'm I'm tired of where you stand. I'm I'm tired of this mission. I'm tired of you being Jesus-centered. You're like a flea. Or you'll say, well, you're going to have to keep on scratching because I'm not going anywhere. Amen? Third. Not only does mission require currency, not only does mission require courage, the mission requires Christ-centered co-laborers. Christ-centered co-laborers. We're going to close out as I hurry to an end. Christ-centered co-laborers. We need cash in order to fulfill God's mission. We need courage in order to fulfill God's mission. And finally, we need, we need each other. We need people who love Jesus and who see the work of the ministry as everyone's responsibility, not just a professional pastor. It is everyone's responsibility. And we've talked about that here at Forest, about the, the priesthood of believers, about the body of Christ. Understand that we all have equal access to God and we all have been called, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, to be ministers of reconciliation. And we're co-laborers. Paul, in this text, he points out a number of different people as examples of co-laborers. In verse 10, he points out Timothy. He says, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him, but help him on his way in peace that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. So he he calls out Timothy, points out Timothy, 
And he says, listen, Timothy is carrying on the work of the Lord. It seems that they were disappointed that Apollos, a popular preacher and teacher, was not going to come. So he says, no, I'm sending you Timothy. Timothy is a co-laborer, just like I am. And he's saying, I need you to help him just like you would me or you would someone else. Timothy was one of Paul's understudies, but Paul also points out three men in verse number 15. And he says that these men gave themselves to serving God's people and sought to encourage the church and church leaders. They were committed to the church. Verse 18 says, they refreshed his spirit as well as theirs. See, Paul was not in this ministry alone. He had other people who were on mission with him. And I pray that Forest Baptist Church would be a, a church 15 years from now that is raising up people and our our children, our grandchildren, missionaries, who will go out all throughout the world and share the gospel. And I pray that we will instill that into our children, that as Christians, we don't just come to a place on Sunday and hear a preacher preach, and that preacher just goes throughout the week and do work while we kind of just casually live our lives. No, we are on mission with our pastors. We are on mission with our deacons. We all are called to be full-time missionaries. And I pray that as Forest Baptist Church and as members of the body that we see ourselves as people who have been called to refresh one another. I love the word refresh. It just sounds refreshing, doesn't it? But we're called to refresh one another. We're called to know one another. He points out another co-labor. He points out Aquila and Priscilla in verse 11, and then he does the same thing in verse 17. I'm sorry, in verse, uh, not verse 11, verse 17 through 22, he points out this, this dynamic couple that was living their lives sold out to God selflessly. And how did that play out? The Bible says that they played out because they opened up their house to believers. And believers came into their home, and that's where they had church. That's where they met. And they did that for years. They inconvenienced themselves by being hospitable to the people of God week in and week out for years. Being a Christian means that we accept the responsibility of inconvenience. Pastor Maceo preached on that a couple weeks ago. Being an effective church means that we accept the responsibility of being inconvenienced for Jesus. Just as Jesus was inconvenienced for us. We're co-laborers. Jim and Elizabeth Elliott were missionaries to uh, Ecuador, and they sought to do missions upon the the Aucas tribe, which was a fierce group whom no one had uh, succeeded in reaching uh, without being killed. And after discovering where that tribe was, Jim, along with four other missionaries, entered into that territory, and they made friendly contact with these people. And three of them was killed. They were speared. And one of the persons that accompanied Jim was was his his wife, and I believe her daughter. Her name was Elizabeth Elliot. And rather than run away from the mission, she lived for 10 years in the middle of an isolated uh, place to reach a people group that was very violent. And she stayed there with local women and did missions among them. 
She recently died. But what courage that took for this woman to love on this people group who killed her husband and to commit herself to that mission and to reaching those people with the gospel. Effective ministry takes cash. Effective ministry takes courage. Effective ministry takes co-laborers. It takes group of people who are willing to go on mission together and who love Jesus enough to put themselves in deep, dark places. Finally, we see in this text that all of this needs to be done. If we're going to have an effective ministry, everything that we do needs to be done under two banners, the banner of grace and the banner of love. The banner of grace and the banner of love. We close out. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. I love that. Hearty greetings. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you. In all Christ Jesus. Amen. Paul has written a a dynamic book, a dynamic letter to the church of Corinth who was struggling on all kind of things. We walked through it. They were suing one another. They were constantly trying to one-up each other, arguing about who was best. They were very divided, very uh, self-centered. They were trying to replace the message of the cross with a message of philosophy. Uh, They were wooed by the world, by by smooth talkers, uh, by Judaizers. And Paul pins this letter to them. And chapter after chapter, we see him standing up and rebuking this church. And then to start the chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 through 9, we see him, number one, starting the, the book in a very gracious way. You would think after reading the first nine verses that Paul is about to write a love letter, a letter, it is a love letter, a letter that is just going to be just kind of nice and cute. But he doesn't. He starts with grace and he ends with grace. (laughs) He starts with grace and he calls this church back to grace. He says we we need to treat people better than they deserve. We need to extend to people um, opportunities of growth and kindness. Because that's how people come to know Jesus. That's how we came to know Jesus, according to Romans chapter 2. It wasn't God barking at us that brought us to repentance. It says it was his kindness that leads us to repentance. But I love what Paul does here. He's speaking about love. He's speaking about grace, how we ought to be a people of love, and we ought to be a people of grace. But then in verse 22, he says, if there is no love for the Lord amongst the people who claim to be Jesus, let them be a curse. In other words, they shouldn't be a part of the church. See, an effective church, an effective ministry, has a clear understanding of what love is. Love is not going along with someone in order to not upset them. Love is speaking the truth to someone and being because you because you care about them. <laughs> That's love. I, I don't love you if I know you, there's a bomb in your house and it's about to explode in five minutes but I see you comfortably sitting on your couch watching your favorite TV show. 
And then I tell you, like, man, you know what? I had something to tell you, but I really love you. I don't want to offend you right now. So you remain comfortable. Keep watching the TV. And I'm going to let you stay right here. No, that's not love. That's hatred. Love says, look, you need to get your butt off this couch. There is a fire coming. (laughs) And you need to leave. I don't care how tired you are. And you plead with them. So Paul says, and my fear amongst the church is that we will confuse love with something else. Love is not rude. We know 1 Corinthians 13 has already given us a picture of love. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. <laughs> it's not envious. No, it's kind and it's patient. But it does it all centered on the truth. And if we're going to be his church, especially in the 21st century where we, uh, we, where we have laws being passed and uh, things that inconvenience uh, Christians or, or things that goes against Christian doctrine, we have to be a church that stands on God's word. And it says if, if someone doesn't, someone doesn't stand in Christ Jesus, then they're not a part of the church. So effective ministry requires cash. It requires courage. It requires co-laborers. And last, it should all be done, everything we do under the banner of grace and love. Let's pray. Uh, Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for uh, this this vision of a church and clarity about uh, who your people are, that we are uh, to be in the world but not of the world. Thank you for the reminder, Father God, that you have called us to live outside of ourselves. I pray, Father God, that you would help us, help me to be centered on you. Help us, Father God, to seek to be effective for you, Lord, and to know that you've only given us one life to live for you, and that life is worth living for you because of what Christ has done for us. I pray that within Forest Baptist Church, Lord, that you would just continue to create a culture that's centered on the gospel, that's centered on sacrifice, that you would help us to appreciate what Jesus has done for us and not to fear that. I pray, Father God, that you would help us, Lord, to to raise up a people in the next 15 to 20 years, Lord, our children, Lord, in such a way that they will, will not be afraid of you, that they'll be willing to go to the end of the earth to talk about you. And that we, Lord, will be okay with that. In fact, that we would desire that, that that would be our honor, Lord, that we would honor that more than them going to an Ivy League school. In Jesus' name we pray.